If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Jordan Armanese is booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, so uh, lots going on today, and and I guess the big story of the day is, oh, should I get to the email first? Okay, let me do the email first. Um, so, uh, you know, politics, a lot of it is communication and just getting the word out. And uh, as we talked about before, the Prime Minister got a new communications person uh, back in, before Christmas, I guess, before Christmas, uh, December, something like that. And you're certainly seeing a lot of bang, bang, bang announcements and certainly a different presentation from the Liberals is now there. Uh, got a new communications person in place trying to help them get out from the basement uh where they are the new nanos poll which was out today where is it? it's in front of me uh 40 of the vote going to the uh conservatives 24 percent of the liberals 20 to the ndp there you go most preferred uh leader pierre Pauly at 35 percent jt at 20 and jagmeet singh at 13 percent so anyway um uh, a lot of its messaging and just the you know we always said this and you know i'm 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 no uh you're no stranger to hearing this um, but I, I think there's just a lot of show and no go. And I got an interesting note uh, from a person, we'll just call Karen. And, uh, she said, uh, feel free, Scott Thompson, 900CHML.com. I can't believe you are so against Trudeau. What is the alternative? Polyev, who has Trump like ideas, puberty blockers? I don't think so. He's not a doctor. I would rather listen to someone who has a fair perspective and not a complete downer on the liberals. Trudeau has his fault, but Polyev is not a suitable contender. Lighten up and broaden your perspective, please. Uh, here's where I stumbled. Puberty blockers, I don't think so. He's not a doctor. Um, what, what happened here is that uh, 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 th- this person has confused the parties. And it is actually the uh, uh, conservatives, it was Pierre Polyev, who said uh, no puberty blockers uh, until, you know, as kids, till they're adults and, and can, um, um, or, you know, do all of that, make those decisions after adolescence. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that um, you, you we're so into a brand, we're so into our are the emblem on our shirt that that what we're either liberals or NDP or we're conservatives and being a centrist this just drives me absolutely nuts because at the end of the day uh, it was Pierre Polyev that was against the puberty blockers to which she says I don't think so and she thinks it's the other way around and uh, you know I've emailed her on this and I haven't uh, you know gotten any response yet but it, it's it's bizarre that people can get so wrapped up in my team versus your team. And this is what's cool about uh, the younger generation coming up, is they may feel a certain way about a certain party and like that policy. They'll pick also a policy from another party on the opposite end of the spectrum and select that as well, which is, in unfortunately, in North American politics, you're either all left or you're all right. We've lost the center. So uh, it's fascinating. But then again, it just shows you the power of, of politics and the love for our prime minister uh, and that initial brand that, that, that came on stage back in 2015 and, and grabbed, the, grabbed Canada 
uh, in embrace. But now it's a different story. And it's, it's funny that even when we start talking about policy and, you know, this whole issue is, is very much a wedge policy, very much like mandatory vaccination was. And again, they're down in the polls and this is dividing Canadians. I'm not sure this is the big issue, the big topic, uh, for, uh, anybody at this point that talking about the gender crisis. We had this under control before, did we not? I digress. All right. So the other thing, uh, there's an auto summit that's going on, which again is very odd because we've got a prime minister who's, who's known to be soft on crime, the catch and release prime minister, you know, uh, went after handgun owners a year or so ago with a ban, and yet gun crimes are up 9%. We certainly know the situation with auto theft. And now all of a sudden, like there's a, a housing summit or a healthcare summit, because virtually there's a crisis everywhere. And now there's a crisis in car theft. They've got a summit together. And here's what the prime minister, uh, here's what the prime minister had to say. First things first, we need to stop these criminals who are part of gangs and organized crime. As you know, Ontario is one of the hotspots for auto theft. So last week we announced $121 million to support law enforcement in the province. We're also looking at further strengthening penalties for anyone who participates in auto theft. We all want to make sure our enforcement agencies have all the tools necessary to prevent auto theft and to get your stolen car back. Yesterday, we announced new funding to make sure the Canada Border Service Agency, RCMP, and the Public Safety Ministry are equipped with enhanced investigative tools and can better detect illegal shipments at ports and recover more stolen vehicles. So we're convening this summit because Canadians need serious action. A catchy slogan won't stop auto theft. A two-minute YouTube video won't disrupt organized crime. Cracking down on auto theft means bringing law enforcement, border services, port authorities, car makers, and insurance companies together. Wow, there is a complete 180 from the soft on crime prime minister and reading strictly from a script. My first question, why now? We've got a housing crisis, a health care crisis, an affordability crisis, an international student crisis, creating a population crisis. And now we've got a car theft crisis. And once again, the prime minister shows up. After the stolen car is on the container and on its way to the Middle East. Wow. Uh, can we, can we maybe start to get ahead of these ideas instead of chasing them? Uh, after the problem is run to faraway lands. My goodness. We've had Jugmeet Singh on this show several times, leader of the uh, federal NDP. He's always been uh, gracious with his time and come on, uh, as has uh, Pierre Polyev, uh, the prime minister, not so much, but I guess that's understandable. Uh, that being said, um, I remember asking several times, is this it? You're going to pull the trigger, going to pull the trigger. And it was no, going to do this, going to do that. And that wasn't his priority at the time. And now Jugmeet Singh the other day just held a news conference and said, March 1st, uh, he's put the prime minister on notice over the pharmacare uh, bill and failure to deliver will be a deal breaker. Of course, he was asked what that meant and, and you know, no, no more information there. So uh, what has changed and are, is his hand getting closer to the trigger on all of this? Peter Grafe with us, professor of political science at McMaster University and here now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
Yeah, I'm fine. Hope you're well, too. So, uh, Peter, why is this happening now? We've talked about this with him several times, and it's never been the right time. Why why now in the push for March, uh, March 1st? Well, I mean, I think, you know, he's looking at the polls like we all are, um, and he can see that a significant chunk of his electorate is likely to, to move towards the Liberals in a situation where voters think the Conservatives are likely to form government, which is kind of the situation we're in at the moment. So it's important for him to try and, you know, solidify his base of voters by uh, being clearly for something that he thinks is important to them, uh, you know, namely pharmacare, and to indicate that he's, you know, not just sitting inside this uh, liberal government, uh, uh, but that his support for this government, um, you know, is, is maybe up in the air if, if there's not movement on that priority. So I, I think in many ways, it's uh, the difficult situation of someone in a in a situation where you're lending support to keep a government in place is that the the government in place gets all the credit and you get all the blame. And mm-hmm. so one way of trying to contest that is to periodically remind people what you you stand for. And this gives them an opportunity, uh, if you like, in rattling the saber uh, to, to show uh, the importance of, of pharmacare. And I presumably as well, should the Liberals move forward on that on that file, it also allows Mr. Singh the opportunity to say that he caused it, you know, whether right. or not that's in fact true. Um, and is this a quote another reminder, or is he getting frustrated and and ready to call it a day? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's clear that the 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 current government in place is thinking that it wants to go to the polls in a bit over a year's time. So presumably after the twenty twenty five budget, and so as a result, I think they don't want to spend too much money this year uh, because they want that money to be, uh, you know, available to them in an election year to to make bigger promises. And so I think in many ways, the deal that the NDP and the Liberals signed two years ago has more or less run its course. You know, Mr. Singh did get uh, the move forward on uh, dental care as a result of that agreement and on uh, the anti-scab legislation that's making its way through. But it looks like the the liberals don't really want to put the money into a pharmacare program, at least one that would, uh, you know, meet with Mr. Singh's approval. And so, yeah, I think for Mr. Singh, the the idea is that maybe now is the time, if there's not movement on pharmacare, to to step outside of that deal and be able to take a more independent position, uh, you know, in negotiating this upcoming budget, but also in the coming year, so that the the federal government uh, of, of Justin Trudeau doesn't have a completely free uh, runway leading up to the next election where Mr. Singh has very few points where he can can make himself, you know, uh, important to Canadians. Uh, New numbers out from Nano's election held today, 40% of vote for conservatives, 24 for liberals, 20% for the NDP on the best leader, 35% for Pierre Polyev, uh, 20% for uh, Justin Trudeau and 13% for the NDP. Can the NDP become the official opposition? Well, uh, you know, there's a way in which uh, that's possible. I mean, in most situations where you have the likelihood of a conservative government, uh, what you see is a move of uh, NDP voters towards the Liberals in an attempt to prevent that from happening. Uh, But, I mean, we do have the recent example of 2011 where the weakness in the Liberal camp, you know, and particularly, uh, you know, was the... Mr. Ignatieff allowed a strong performance by uh, Jack Layton, uh, you know, to make the NDP uh, the the official opposition. I think compared to Mr. Layton, Mr. Singh has maybe done less uh, to really build Mm -hmm. himself in the image of a potential uh, leader of the opposition and and build that uh, kind of rapport with Canadians. So it may be a bit harder for him. 
But, you know, we can also look on the provincial scene where the the provincial Liberal Party in the past two provincial elections has really, uh, you know, despite getting uh, percentages not so far from what the NDP did, has, has fallen to third place. So, yeah, it's not an impossibility, um, but it would take uh, a sort of a change in how the Canadian electorate is looking at this election, which at the moment is still about, you know, if you don't want the Conservatives, you're going to shore up uh, the Trudeau Liberals. Uh, you know, it would have to show more weakness on the part of uh, Justin Trudeau for people to say, no, in fact, the NDP would be the alternative in the, in the situation. I only got a few seconds left. Uh, how will the Liberals react to uh, this pressure by the NDP? Uh, well, there's some indication that the actual negotiations, uh, the parties are closer. So one possibility is that they'll do mm. the bare minimum to to keep this alive. And in a way, that takes some of the shine off Mr. Singh if if he doesn't, you know, pull the plug, and yet not that much has been uh, been accomplished. But right. I think they also think they could, uh, you know, work without the NDP in their tent, and they might actually have a freer hand uh, to do the kinds of policies that are more interesting to them than these ones aimed at lower income Canadians that they've been trotting out due to uh, the deal with the NDP. Peter Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, uh, the NDP putting pressure on the Liberals by March 1st to deliver on Pharmacare. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Another issue which is kind of interesting, and we hear about this, you know, we're all dealing, I guess, with affordability issues and such. Um, but as you may or may not know, if you're in that uh, in that pay grade, uh, the uh, Canada has quite a high tax rate. I think if you make t- over two, Marvin will help me with this, 240-ish, uh, you're getting taxed at like a 52 or 53% uh, uh tax rate. And uh, right now, um, somebody who makes even way more money, uh, which means Leafs captain John Tavares, is fighting uh, Canada's tax agency over $8 million it claims he owes. This apparently was uh, revolving around a bonus he got when he first came to the Leafs. To explain it all, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, he is here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Better than John Tavares. Well, you know, you got to wonder how do you how do you keep your mind on your work when you're staring at an eight million dollar tax bill? Uh, d- decode this for us. Apparently, this is around his bonus. Yes. So I have to take you back a few years to the year 2018. 2018, John Tavares didn't play for the Maple Leafs then. He played for the New York Islanders. And when his contract was up, there was a bit of a free-for-all, as everyone thought that he would be good to add to their company, or to their to their team, excuse me. And um, the Leafs won. Now, part of the reason why they won is they were willing to offer him a really good salary. I believe it was 70 uh, let's say $77 million over, I think it was roughly seven years. But uh, as well, there was a signing bonus. So he said, okay, all things equal, I'm coming to Toronto. And then, of course, he files his taxes. Well, the, the whole uh, crux of this argument is when is a signing bonus part of your base salary and when is a signing bonus something else? So he does not dispute that he should pay tax on this amount. He just thinks he should pay tax at a lower rate. The highest marginal Canadian tax rate is 33%. Now, that doesn't include Ontario taxes, but just for the federal government is 33%. And that kicks in, and it's inflation adjusted every year, so I can't give you the exact number for this year, but it's around $250,000, $260,000. If you get above that, you're in the highest marginal tax bracket. And certainly, if you got paid $17 million, which is what he did make in that year, um, you would be, you'd be in that tax bracket. 
So the question comes, well, what did he think he should pay and what does CRA think he should pay? Uh, well before 2018, Canada and the United States signed a tax treaty. And part of the tax treaty was how do you treat some of these rather large numbers for people like performers, uh, movie stars, and yes, athletes. And in that tax treaty, the statement is that if you are given an, and this is the key word, inducement, an inducement, the highest marginal tax rate for you is 15% on your inducement. So John Tavares' argument is, I need to pay tax on this, but I don't need to pay it at 33%. I should only be paying it at 15%, and that difference is $8 million. So uh, this is what he's putting into his court submission. Now, Revenue Canada had looked at his taxes from 2018 and concluded that he could not do that, that he needed to pay it 33%. So they assessed him a penalty for 2018. I want to tell you it was around $6.5 million, and then said, as, and this happens if this has ever happened to you, if you do get assessed a penalty, well, but that's what you should have paid then, so there are now interest on that and fees on top of that, and that's <laughs> how you get to the $8 million. Uh, they have not issued any kind of a response at this point. There is a specialized tax court that will hear this case, hear both sets of arguments, and primarily they're going to rule as to when is a signing bonus and inducement or when is a signing bonus your base salary. Why this has caused a bit of the fracas it has uh, is that, well, there's lots of professional athletes operating in Canada. Take, take hockey out of the equation. Of course, we've got basketball players and football players and baseball players, and then you have performers, you get movie stars, you get uh, singers and what have you. Uh, how should they be taxed? And so if this clause is being applied incorrectly, there are millions of dollars that are at stake here. On the other hand, if it's being applied correctly, then John Tavares sort of argued that, well, if I had known I was going to be taxed at this rate, maybe I would have signed with a different team. And so you take somebody like the Leafs, they go, wait a minute, wait a minute, give them the benefit of the doubt. I want a high-quality, high-caliber player in my, my team. Don't do this. All of this is going to play out, but it'll take months to sort out. There's lots of athletes, lots of entertainers. Uh, does this happen more than we think it is? And this yeah. is just a high-profile case. Uh, because at the end of the day, you're thinking, well, isn't there an accountant or a, or a person that you would hire to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen or that well, you tease across and such? You do. Bless your heart. You do hire these high-profile uh, accountants and lawyers to go through this, but you are trying to interpret the rules. So let me give you a simple example. John Tavares plays 82 regular season hockey games. 41 of those are played in Toronto. 41 of those are played on the road. Depending upon where he's playing a hockey game, there are tax rules in those cities. For instance, mm. in New York City, they actually have a city uh, income tax. So that if I am a player earning money in that city, so now how much of my salary am I earning in New York City that mm. I can be charged for? And this then becomes a key question. Then you throw in the playoffs, then you throw in the other things. So there's a lot of interpretation. And generally speaking, these things get sorted out, if you will, in back rooms that you and I never hear about them. The fact that Tavares got a ruling but didn't like the ruling and is now just choosing to appeal it says we're going to hear a lot more about this than we normally would. Is, um, is this black and white, Marvin, or could this be settled somewhere in the middle, as you alluded to? 
Well, I suppose it could be settled. You know, again, uh, my first reaction is if Revenue Canada has only recently came up with this assessment for 2018, it does feel a little unfair to then pile on the the extra taxes. And maybe the idea is, look, if you pay us six and a half million now, we'll forget about the extra fees as it goes. Uh, and that is, again, not unusual, especially if Revenue Canada doesn't come across the money until well after a date. So that incentive to pay up is, well, we'll, we'll forgive those extra fees and penalties. But I think this is an interesting question. And as I said earlier, when is an inducement a signing bonus? And when is a signing bonus your base salary? I'm actually surprised we've not had a case that settled this some time ago, but for some reason it doesn't seem like it's all black and white, and that's why the court is going to rule. Look at that. Even the rich and famous have troubles. Uh, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Uh, Leaves captain John Tavares uh, arguing with the income tax people. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Definitely a first world problem, Scott. <laughs> that is for sure. Thank you, Marvin. It was just last week that we were talking about affordability issues, uh, the cost of groceries, the cost of rent, housing, all that sort of stuff. And now we're talking about gender politics and all that sort of stuff. Has Pierre Polyev given Justin Trudeau the wedge issue he needs for the next election? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data here now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott, who would have guessed this would be a subject we'd all be talking about, but we are talking about it, and boy, it's a tough one because it's getting weaponized to the suggestion of your introduction, not just by the conservatives, but by the liberals. But anyway, let's dive in, buddy. Uh, and it's amazing because it's almost like they're using the same line. Uh, we're both representing the parents. Uh, an interesting take on this. I don't think Canadians know that much about it. I got an email earlier today with, from somebody who said um, puberty blocker. He's not a doctor. Uh, and this person was condemning uh, Pierre Polyev, yep. which I think they thought it was the other way around. So here's somebody on Team uh, Trudeau who is condemning Pierre Polyev, but actually agrees with what, the, what Pierre Polyev was saying. How much of this has become a communication war? Oh, it, it, most certainly it has. So understand the context, right, before we get into what Daniel Smith announced and how it's played out here. The conservatives in the past, have always been vulnerable since the creation of the party, dating back to the days of Peter McKay and Stephen Harper, on um, quality issues, on issues related to gender and identity. And the liberals at different times on different issues have been effective in, in creating a sense of doubt about the conservatives' commitment to those issues, making people feel like, again, in certain circumstances, there's a degree of intolerance uh, and that there's a playing to, you know, the extreme right of, of some social conservatives on the extreme right. So you had Daniel Smith uh, announce this policy last week. It goes further than Scott Moen in um, Saskatchewan and Blaine Higgs in, uh, in New Brunswick, who focused more on pronoun identification and what that meant and the role of parents and, and the like. She's went further and, of course, got into laying out uh, potential legislation dealing with medical procedures, dealing with pharmaceutical 
options, dealing with um, activities, sports, and who can participate and not, also deals with pronouns and, and who will oversee mm-hmm. all of that. And the Liberals immediately leaped on that, um, not surprising, uh, uh, condemning Smith, um, who made the argument around parental rights, and uh, and started started the comparison uh, to Smith and conservatives being very much like magma conservatives yep. in the U.S. Yeah. And then I, I know you want to ask a question. I'll just go quickly to this point. Polyev had been saying for a number of days, provincial issue, province gets to decide how they educate people and, and how, how they deal with health care. Not my issue. Well, yesterday that all changed when he offered an opinion after a significant grilling on whether he supported puberty blockers or not and said he opposed their usage uh, for people under the age of 17. And that's where it brought us to the place we are in today. Um, were puberty blockers available to those lower than that age anyway? Where? How big an issue? Like, I'm not sure if this is a, a self-created problem or not. Were we not handling it right the way before? Well, all I know from re- reports in the National Post about the surgery, not about puberty blockers. So the the premier wants to restrict top and bottom surgery as it's called for children for people under the age of 17. In Alberta last year, there were only eight people who got uh, one of those surgeries. I don't know about puberty blockers, but I think, you know, it's a bit unseemly that any politician, regardless of stripe, who is not a trained physician, a trained mental health and wellness counselor, is weighing in on this. The irony for the Conservatives is, you know, Conservatives rightly have long stood for you know, limited state intervention in the lives of their citizens. Yeah. Yet in this case, uh, provincially and apparently probably of supporting to a degree, um, you know, a state-driven intervention as children and their parents uh, and their physicians navigate through what has to be a very complicated issue and very personal issue of of transition um, and, and identity. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to blow up in Polyev's face, but it's certainly not her helping him right now, nor is it helping the federal liberals who've diminished this to magma, 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 magma. I mean, most of the politicians that are talking about this should shut up and leave it to the professionals and the families that are working through this. So you don't see this having the traction to become a real wedge issue, like say mandatory vaccine. Well, I think the liberals are going to push it hard. Uh, I'm not just because I think it's stupid. Doesn't yeah. mean the liberals aren't going to push it hard. I think they're going to push it hard, try and get polyev in different positions and then use those positions to suggest a level of intolerance and the like. Right. Uh, I would say very quickly, and I'm sure you have these conversations. There's probably, there are a lot of people who are having, you know, conversations about pronouns and trying to understand if they're not um, as connected with the discussion now, why, you know, the pronouns are so important to people from an identity perspective. And there are probably equally people at a very cursory level who are saying that, yeah, if my child was going through this, uh, I, I want to have some role in it. And I think the danger that yeah. conservatives have is they, they've taken that farther and, created an opportunity for the liberals perhaps to frame them as intolerant, lacking understanding and creating mental and physical health challenges for children who don't need it.
And I didn't even ask you about JT hosting the car theft summit. Isn't even that a bit like him holding an oil and gas summit? But no, we can't go there. Uh, thank you Next as all, Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, buddy. Talk later. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've certainly heard lots of chatter in regard to a truce or a ceasefire of some sort between Hamas and Israel. Uh, obviously, uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Blinken trying very hard to to accommodate or push forward the idea. And now it looks like Israel says no peace deal without a total victory. Let's bring in Arl Brown, a professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and here now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. What are your thoughts, Arl, on uh, the statement from Netanyahu that total victory over Hamas is the only alternative here? Well, this is a statement uh, that actually was also made by the major Western powers. So now it's being portrayed as just some kind of extreme statement. But the reality Mm. is that there had been a consensus. This is where there was moral clarity that both for the sake of Israel, but also for the people of Gaza, Hamas had to be removed. That meant total victory. Hamas could not have a role. In this proposal that came back from Hamas, was the type that would go counter not just what Israel had uh, expressed, but also what the Western powers had expressed. Because what Hamas basically was demanding was that in exchange for the remaining hostages whom they kidnapped against international law, uh, uh, and after having committed some of the most horrific crimes uh, in modern history, they wanted the Israeli forces to draw completely from Gaza, there would be massive aid coming in to rebuild. They would they would get to stay in power, even though they are largely defeated militarily. And so it is difficult to see how anybody would, would accept that. And uh, you have uh, Anthony Blinken, who somehow seems to think that, yes, this is kind of uh, bad. And uh, Biden said this is uh, somewhat over the top. But let's see if we can find something, anything. And this just encourages Hamas to believe that they don't need to surrender, they don't need to leave, that they can somehow hope that pressure will increase on Israel, that Israel will be portrayed as a recalcitrant party, uh, and uh, that uh, what they are proposing, basically, that they would restore themselves and that they would be able to commit the same crimes over and over again, would become acceptable. Um, obviously, uh, Israel not happy until Hamas is completely out of the picture. They have, um, um, they're, they're dead against anything that leaves Hamas in control of Gaza. Who is going to then control Gaza if it's not Israel or it's not Hamas? We have to see what happens at the end of the conflict. And sometimes, you know, when you are in a war, uh, you don't do the, uh, detailed planning uh, at the beginning. It wasn't done during the Second World War. Mm. What the uh, Allied powers said at that point, that the Axis powers, the Nazis, have committed such horrific crimes together with the Japanese militaries as well as uh, the Italian fascists that they needed to have unconditional surrender. And after that, they devised administrative bodies 
they uh, uh, had a transition period, and they eventually created successful uh, democracy. So the demand now to say, you're in the middle of a war, but give us detailed planning of exactly what's going to happen, and that this burden somehow belongs entirely to Israel, which had been the victim of this horrific attack, and uh, that is facing an enemy that uh, declares very openly that if they were to reconstitute themselves, they would not really not change their ways, but they would continue mm-hmm. the same kind of uh, massacres until uh, eradicating the state of Israel. And so in that kind of situation, uh, this uh, attempt at negotiationism, this kind of uh, uh, belief that somehow you could have all these details in place of what would occur while Hamas is still hanging on in, in Rafah, while uh, uh, the hostages are still uh, being held by Hamas, is not particularly uh, realistic. And I think this is one of the things that Hamas is counting on, that by having these kind of demands on the table, they believe that somehow Israel, from internal pressure from the hostage families, and it's very understandable that if you have a loved one who has been kidnapped, is being tortured, and we know what Hamas has done, you would say, give them anything. Yeah. Uh, but a state has to look at the larger picture and say, well, what is the result? When they traded uh, 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 terrorists, one single hostage, uh, uh, a soldier, Shalit, they gave over a thousand terrorists over. One of them was uh, Yahya Sinwar, who's the leader of the militant uh, uh, military wing of, uh, of, of Hamas. And so we have to ask ourselves, what would we in Canada do if we were in the same kind of position? What would any other state do if they were in, in that position? But this is what uh, terrorists and this is what dictatorships count on. This is the kind of thing that Vladimir Putin is counting on, that somehow, no matter how uh, repugnant his aggression was against Ukraine, Somehow, Western countries will tire. They will want to negotiate at our costs, uh, uh, and that eventually he would prevail. And this is, in a sense, what we need to resist. This is why we have to go back to the basic principles and 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 say to ourselves: uh, Did we not have a, a clear consensus? Did we not have more clarity about what needs to happen? Why mm-hmm. would we deviate from that? Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Certainly uh, lots of politics going on at every angle, uh, it appears, in the country. And um, obviously, uh, Ukraine still top of mind for a a lot of people and then not so much for others. And there's been lots of debate about uh, a bill, of course, a new trade deal with uh, Ukraine. And the liberals and such uh, promoted all of this. And there was a, I guess, the disagreements is over a carbon uh, reference, carbon tax reference or, or carbon reference in this trade deal. Uh, and that, of course, red, uh, raised red flags for uh, the conservatives. They said this should not be part of the deal. And now it is sort of being painted as if the conservatives aren't uh, supporting the liberals. Is it 
conservatives turning on Ukraine or just disagreeing with liberal policy. Let's bring in Muhammad Ali, vice president with Crestview Strategies and here now. Muhammad, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott, for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. No matter which way you slice or dice this, Mohammed, does it just look bad for the conservatives as it appears that they aren't supporting Ukraine and not obviously digging deep in to see what all this is about? Yeah, there's, there, it's very hard to kind of slice and dice this to because at the, the, at the face value that they couldn't put the importance of Ukraine over some, you know, personal ideological reasons around carbon pricing, which you know, within the text of it, there's no compulsory requirement for either country to have a carbon pricing regime. And in fact, Ukraine has already had one for about a decade. So it's a bit foolhardy for conservatives to now be painted as anti-Ukraine um, so, in this important time, like, you know, push back against Russia. Is this fallout for just a bad political decision? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, the bill passes, and I think the majority of Canadians obviously support uh, Ukraine, including conservatives. Is this just a bad move for them, a shot in the foot? It is a shot in the foot because, you know, there is this, if you recall, under Stephen Harper, uh, previous conservative uh, prime minister before Justin Trudeau, he made a big point of always standing up, up to Vladimir Putin and standing up for Ukraine. Like very much made it part of his uh, his uh, his mandate on foreign policy. You know, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian Canadians are very diverse, particularly in the prairies, which a lot of conservative MPs are. Their writings are at, and so to have this pivot is just a, a demonstration of a, a very bad political judgment. Uh, I mean, even further, just you know, a bit concerning that they are willing to uh, lean into uh, a bit of pro-Russia kind of dynamics. Now, are they advocating for Russia? No, but no. by not taking a position to support free trade with the Ukrainians, I think it's a very, very bad and very poorly judged uh, decision. So they they chose to uh, uh, obviously play the politics of this. Is it about disagreeing with the liberals for them? Or does this is this reflective of waning support for Ukraine, which we've heard bits about? So it's interesting. Like I think there's a bit of both, but to be unpacked, um, look the 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 it's a I mean the conservatives are traditionally very pro free trade. So the fact that they're opposing this just um, is an even question mark on that alone with yeah. the Ukraine dynamic. Um, but what's been changing under like sort of the right on the on the right side of the political spectrum, more right wing, as you saw in the in the U.S. quite a bit. Uh, with the Trump side and the you know the, the Republicans, that there is more of this growing uh, view to not do more or not do anything for Ukraine to defend itself against Russia. And in fact, in some corners, like as you saw, you know all the hype around Tucker Carlson engaging with all the conservatives and everyone being excited about that in Canada uh, on the conservative side. Um, he's right now trying to interview Vladimir Putin to give him a, a megaphone to talk to. And demonstrate that oh he's not such a bad guy like it's <clears throat> you know it's very concerning and dangerous that conservative politicians are are leaning more into 
some you know misinformation and uh and you know bit which of, of course which of course which of course the liberals are going to jump on uh, i i'd rather not spend my time talking about tucker carlson if you don't mind he's just a man looking for a job who doesn't have a paycheck anymore uh so i, I don't want to spend time talking about him um uh it, does it work for justin trudeau to constantly paint pierre polyev as a maga or a, a donald trumper it certainly has its benefits, and that's because when you when you raise the word MAGA or Trump or Trumpian or you know anything from the deep south, uh, it 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 elicits an image in people's minds of what it was like under a Trump presidency in the United States. Everyone watched it uh, with bated breath for four years, and even then after, given what's the you know the, the court cases and all that stuff. So when you can paint Pierre Polliver and the Conservatives in that same light, it you know without saying much, you've already painted them into a negative picture. So by now connecting them to opposing Ukraine, they have just helped Justin Trudeau and the Liberals further that argument that in fact they are very on the Trumpian side because Donald Trump is very pro-Russian. Yeah. So that connection is going to be very powerful for Liberals to continue to push upon and paint the Conservatives leading into the next election. Do you think that finally people are going to realize what is going on here? Because it seems that we've seen this going on a lot and, 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 you know, there certainly are ones that are, that are swayed by it. But at this point, it seems the rubbers hit the road and Canadians are kind of figuring out which way's up. Yeah. I, I think there's also a bit of people who are like, okay, you have not taken a position like this. That's a little bit questionable. What else are you doing that's maybe questionable that I may not agree with? Right now, as, as voters get closer to an election period, they start to pay attention more. So if this keeps coming up closer and closer to an election period and it becomes a, an election issue. Uh, what would you do in, in, uh, in a situation with like Russia, Ukraine on foreign policy? Are you going to just bend over because of ideology or are you going to defend democracy and defend, you know, against tyranny? Like it's, it's going to be hard for Pierre Polliver to answer that question as a on, on the right side of it. But so, you know, as voters get closer, they're going to question other components of Pierre as they learn more and more about them. So it's important for the liberals to continue to demonstrate that momentum of like, hey, this is not who you think it is. He is a lot more not aligned with what Canadian values are, what Canadian priorities are, and what is the right thing to do. Have Canadians forgot that we vote left, then we vote right, then we vote left, then we vote right, we vote left, then we vote right, then we vote left, then we vote right, and we end up in the middle. It seems that we're, just, you know, and it's interesting. I read an article on Generation Z that's saying that they're less like that, like that, in the sense that they may pick an energy policy from one party, but then they're going to pick a development policy for, or, uh, you know, an infrastructure policy from the other. Uh, party, uh, do you do you think we're we're do you think that we're getting lost in the extremes here? Well, I mean, politics right now has become so extreme and toxic; it's turning off people and more than turning them yeah. on to it. Um, you know, the Gen Zer generation or the Zillennials, whatever you want to call them, they are going to disrupt how people think politics. But I think it's not going to be right now. It's going to be in probably like to the ten. 10, mm. 15 years from now when they are into their 30s and into their 40s when they're because that's when usually like even for millennials yeah. they took some time to become more engaged and are now the major voting block and so their dynamics change you know when you're 18 you know 19 years old it's a lot different than when you're yeah. 30 31 right like starting a family or, or whatnot right so 
um, you know, a, a group they need to watch closely. But even that dynamic of like, oh, I, I like certain policies and such, that issue based also will resonate in how political parties adjust. If they don't adjust, for example, climate change, if you continue to deny it, you're going to alienate a voter base that may be open to some of the other policies, but they fundamentally believe on environment and climate change. Well, you're going to have to do something. So I think it could start hopefully mold parties a little bit differently to think more dynamically as opposed to very, you know, uh, in, in a small C right. conservative way of like, I'm never going to change is how I am. I'm always going to be. Muhammad Ali with us, Vice President, Crestview Strategies, talking about all things political. Uh, Muhammad, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. An ex-RCMP intelligence officer found guilty of attempting to sell secrets will serve seven years behind bars, part of a 14-year sentence with time served handed down on Wednesday. Uh, this after he was found guilty of breaching Canada's official secrets law. To talk more about all of this, Gary, Cl- uh, Gary Clement with us, author of Undercover Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and the RCMP, and is here now. Gary, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks very much for having me, Scott. Uh, we've heard a lot, uh, uh, Gary, of late of of how Canada has perhaps dropping its, uh, dropped its guard or never put the guard up in the first place to watch for things like foreign interference and, uh, you know, even even uh, issues such as this with uh, secret sharing and that sort of thing. Uh, are, are you getting the impression that the, the view of government or our view on issues like this is changing? Well, you know, it's nice to see they're hooked. They organized that meeting today on stolen autos. But as I was said on an interview last week, I, you know, I'm glad to see they're taking some action. The reality of it is, is that the stolen vehicles is one factor in how transnational organized crime is operating. Um, I, I really, I hate to say it, I don't think our government is really getting it to the point that it should be. We, we've allowed this country to get eroded so badly because of the lack of federal enforcement taking on these huge problems that I, we're, we're on a slippery slope. We've lost, uh, I think we had a sterling reputation at one time in the international community. Um, and, you know, now Five Eyes, you see, which we are part of, is actually will be doing things and, and not even including Canada. And all of that, for me, is something that I think should be disheartening for everybody but it definitely is for me because uh you know it wasn't too long ago we were looked up to as having this sterling reputation and ability to take on organized crime and it's been eroded to a point where transnational organized crime sees this as a free ride and uh is what you know coming into this country in droves that was my next point here, uh, Gary, was you talk from uh, a sterling reputation to now it seems not only have we let our guard down, but we're a target. We're ground zero. We're the place to be for this sort of activity. Well, it's like anything. Uh, organized crime will go to the lane of least resistance. And, you know, it's you can pick up the news just about any day of the week and read some. We heard last uh, last week about a billion dollars that was stolen in a carousel fraud scheme uh, through the HST fraud and no criminal investigation. We, we read about how a couple of the large banks, HSBC in particular, uh, was involved in allowing all this money to, to flow yeah. in from uh, uh, China 
to buy real estate and how it drove property prices up very similar to did in Vancouver. And I dare say it's probably happening in every city in, in Ontario. And, you know, the, the list goes on. I, you know, I've, I've talked about Iranian um, factions that are here the uh, and how this is impacting the Iranian community, but it also is allowing for money laundering to occur. So uh, my concern is I think we've got I hate to say it, but I think we got uh, far too much uh, corruption um, that is now getting into our society. We've we've got some of our major institutions, and in my view, have been compromised by these or- organizations being being able to get people in. And you know, it's time that we do a wholesale review of what's happening in this country and start taking it seriously. And you know, our politicians need to realize they got to be. They do not have, as Mr. Trump would like to say they don't have a free pass we got to start holding them to account as well so do you think we can turn this around gary i think we can um you know we got a lot of intelligent people we got a lot of people that are very devoted but my concern is if we don't soon do something i mean i i think it's been well reported on how our ports are are really controlled by organized crime that's an absolute travesty um, for this country to be, say that and then not take any definitive action. So uh, we can, you know, I think it's capable of turning it around. It's going to take an investment. It's going to take a reworking of the RCMP if, we, if they're going to be the federal force and uh, a commitment to put in the proper resources and financing because otherwise, uh, without it, or transnational organized crime will continue to win and get stronger. Gary Clement with us, author of Undercover, Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and the RCMP. Gary, thanks for the uh, conversation. Quite insightful. Be well. We'll chat again. Thanks very much. Look forward to it. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember the uh, uh, the Arrive Can app. Do you remember that? This was during the height of the global pandemic. And, you know, the whole idea, nobody knew where this was coming from. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew how to treat it. Nobody knew what it was. Uh, and travel was obviously a, a big issue. So the whole idea, if you keep all this stuff together on an Arrive Can app, you can uh, better manage what you're doing, where you're going, uh, which, you know, your, your, uh, your life in the, your life in amongst a global pandemic. Now we're finding out that the Arrive Can execs got $340,000 in bonuses, which I found funny simply because, um, uh, it, it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> and many, uh, just uh, not that long ago, said that it, it really wasn't a success in any way. But that didn't stop them from getting about $340,000 uh, in bonuses. Is that the case? Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. He is here now. Franco, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, I am well. I mean, not as well off as some of those government executives, but I'm doing okay. I don't remember anybody ever saying anything remotely that positive about the Arrive Can app. I, I think there, it was riddled with some mistakes, was it not? <laughs> well, that was a good understatement. Now, Thank I mean, you. <laughs> I mean, this whole process was crazy. There's like a news story every day. So let me take you and your listeners through a taxpayer timeline, if I may, right? So this Arrive Can, it was launched in April 2020 with an original price tag of 80000 bucks. Then in July 2022, 
Canadians were told that the cost of a ride can had ballooned to about 26 million bucks. A couple months after that, in October 22nd, or 2022, sorry, we find out the real costs are actually more like $54 million. So it started out as 80,000 bucks, eventually climbed all the way to $54 million. And then a month after that, you had the tech industry up in arms wondering how in the world a simple app could cost that much money. So a couple of independent techies ended up recreating the app over the span of like a long weekend. Another tech expert said that the actual cost to develop the thing should have been around 250000 bucks. So an absolute boondoggle if I've ever seen one. And guess what, folks? It's still bonus time. So uh, how do you get to a bonus discussion considering where you just came from? Okay, so you know what? We were at committee. I was at committee in Parliament testifying to the MPs saying, hey, um, there has to be accountability here, right? You can't just have this go so badly, have this become a national scandal, have this become a complete waste of taxpayers' money, and then just let people off the hook, right? Because what does that say for next time? Well, for next time, it says, don't worry, folks, you can mess up so royally and still get rewarded for it. So I was there saying, and the bonuses. Well, we just got documents from the government of Canada showing that one, one of the departments that were working on the Arrive Can, the Public Health Agency of Canada, they had eight executives working on this, overseeing this, and they handed out $342,000 in bonuses. Okay, so the average bonus for all those executives over the two years was about 42000 bucks plus. Now, it gets even worse because there was two other departments that were also in some way involved with the Arrive Can. There was the Canada Border Service Agency and Public Services Procurement Canada. They weren't willing to say whether or not and how much money bonuses were paid out to their executives. So it's quite likely that the $342,000 in bonuses to executives working on a ride can may just be the tip of the iceberg. What about those that I'm, you know, I'm always playing devil's advocate here for you, Franco. So yeah, what? A, this is a global pandemic, or it was. No one knew what was going on. We had to get what we did, and we made some mistakes. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. But hey, look, like, okay, I don't care how good the rest of your work is. If you cost your company $54 million bucks, when the original price tag was 80K, and then a couple independent techies were able to recreate that thing in like a couple days, you're not getting a bonus, right? You probably should start polishing off your resume. Only in the world of government can this happen. And, you know, you and I, we've had conversations like this in the past where, look, it's not just this one department that has the issue, right? Because the feds have handed out more than a billion dollars in bonuses since 2015 despite departments meeting less than half of their own performance targets consistently, right? Bank of Canada failed on its inflation targets, tens of millions of dollars in bonuses. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, obviously people are, can't afford homes, doesn't matter, tens of millions of dollars in bonuses, right? So the issue here is that bonus, when it comes to the federal government, isn't like a bonus like me or you think about it, right? Bonus for a good job, no bonus when you completely fail. Right. It seems like the federal government, when they're spending taxpayers cash, a bonus is just like a participation award. It seems like we talk about this a lot, Franco. Uh, will bonuses become an issue? I mean, it already is, I guess. But is there a template needed or maybe just a rule across the board? Your gig is your gig. There's no bonus. Well, I mean, and like, let's just see some like exercise of common sense, too. 
right? Like, I, I think anyone can reasonably imagine that when you have this debacle, when you have an issue that becomes a national scandal like this, and rightfully so, you probably shouldn't be handing out bonuses to the executives that were involved in this. Like, I can't believe I have to say that out loud. Now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, now, there is, this is becoming a political issue, right? Because the conservatives have been jumping on the bonus issue, the, the bonus issues that we've been talking about. But then also, too, we got the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, we got him on the record at the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast to say that he would end the bonuses for failing government authorities, like the Bank of Canada, right, like the CBC. So we're going to hold him to his word if he ever does become prime minister. How do you determine what's failing? Well, that's a, that's a freaking, that's a good question right there. But let me tell you, this is failing, right? Yeah. The rise can going from an $80,000 initial cost to $26 million in July of 2022 to $54 million uh, by October 2022. That's failing. All right. Uh, we remember the Arrive, uh, Arrive Can app. I don't remember too many people saying many good things about it or even that many that used it, yet still got $340,000 in bonuses for the execs. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Franco, or sorry, Franco, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. We're convening this summit because Canadians need serious action. A catchy slogan won't stop auto theft. A two-minute YouTube video won't disrupt organized crime. Cracking down on auto theft means bringing law enforcement, border services, port authorities, car makers, and insurance companies together. Whatever that means. Uh, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, and I remember uh, talking to you about a report in which uh, police, and I believe it was southern Italy, found containers holding like 250 Canadian uh, automobiles that have been stolen from the Quebec or Ontario area. Uh, they can seem to track them down, but we can't seem to find them. And this has just been a massive problem that's incre increased across the greater Toronto Hamilton area and, and right across the country for that matter to the point where it's obviously we have become a haven for this sort of activity. And now the prime minister is hosting a summit on car theft. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Laurie Turnbull with us, professor and chair of public and international affairs with Dalhousie University and here now. Laurie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. I hope you are too. So far, so good, Laurie. So your thoughts on this summit, uh, why now? Yeah, I mean, like, the data are out there. We can see that there is a rise in auto theft, and we can see that this is a massive problem. And so um, I was kind of surprised, though, to be honest, when the one of the first announcements that came out of the cabinet retreat a couple of weeks ago was this, we are we are going to do something about auto theft, which honestly, like, is is something that we think of sometimes as more of a, a, a local issue, a provincial issue, uh, and to see the federal cabinet come out in response to it. I mean, obviously it's a crime, so it's federal jurisdiction. But when we think about property, when we think about that sort of thing, like we think about it in a local way a lot of the time. And so for the feds to come out and say, this is this is the first, like one of the first announcements from the cabinet retreat, clearly they're taking it quite seriously. Um, I think it's, res it's a response to uh, the fact that we can see that auto theft is on the rise. We can see that there is a greater demand internationally for stolen cars. And clearly, as you said in your opener, like the Canada is caught in this. Like there's, there seems to be a demand and there seems to be um, a supply in Canada. Um, the federal liberals not necessarily known for being tough on crime, although, you know, quick on handgun bills, that sort of thing. Is this an about face mm -hmm. for them? Because, you know, when you think of catch and release and, and all those other issues, uh, now all of a sudden they're tough on crime, which is normally a conservative position. 
For sure. I mean, like, this is a comfortable position for the conservatives to take. That we're going to be tough on crime and we are going to respond, you know, with with a very heavy hand when these sorts of things happen. But I think, to be honest, like, it doesn't have to be put on ideological lines. Tough on crime, yes. But and and yes, that's typically a conservative position. But for the liberals, like, this is a massive issue and this is a very personal issue. Like, to have your vehicle stolen. It would be horrific for an individual, for a family to have to tell your children, like, yeah, we can't go to soccer tonight because the car is stolen. I mean, God, like that, this is hitting home for people. And so I think, um, and, fr- and frankly, like the liberals are the government. They can't just, they, they can't say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're going to take some sort of soft position on this. Like, absolutely not. I think it's, it's certainly an opportunity for them to show that while they may not have the tough on crime jersey that the conservatives have, they are still willing to be there when you know when the when the circumstances need. But yet, I think the parties will be different in terms of how they're going to respond to this, how they would respond to it. They're both going to want to look tough on it, but their specifics on their responses would be different. Again, Laurie, nothing new here. Much like the housing crisis or the health care crisis, uh, is this going to be viewed by Canadians as um, a reaching policy for? Uh, the liberals. This is, you know, again, it's the house, all the, you know, six months ago, housing wasn't a concern. Now, all of a sudden, every day you're seeing housing announcements. It seems that these, yeah. uh, that this government is late to react, late to, sh- late to show up to the party. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, government is always late to show up to the party. Like there's always, like government's always, always catching up. But at the same time, um, I think in this case, there, there's clearly a, a, a need to respond. There's an issue that's going on. There's pressure from Premier Ford, for example, to say, like, what are we doing at the border? There is a multi-pronged response that has to happen because there's different things contributing, right? So, like, the industry has to be involved, the um, the government, the police, CBSA, and then there's got to be thinking about what's going on internationally that's creating this, this pressure in the first place. And what are we going to do to respond to all of that? As far as the Liberals looking late to respond, well, of course they do, because they're the government. But I think... Um, I don't know. I don't know, Laurie. I think you're being awfully generous there. I mean, you know, again, we're talking about the housing issue, the boost in population, and then all of a sudden a student international student cap. I mean, they're, they're, they're shooting from the left and the right and then reacting to it afterwards. It it seems that there isn't a lot of pre-planning going on here before these announcements are necessarily made. It's, it's after the fact. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. They are in reactive mode for sure. And I think that that you could make that argument for a while now, that there has been um, a kind of push on the government to to react to things when they happen. And the housing crisis, for example, could be is, is a prime example of things that like an issue that governments could see coming coming for decades and like could mm-hmm. see coming for years and at all levels of government. And there's still not a clear response to it. And then once it hits a crisis, uh, then, then there's the response. Something like, uh, you know, say, well, there's going to be a cap on international students coming into the country as a way of managing the housing crisis. Come on, like the, as as if the, the international students are a huge part of the housing. Like, I mean, the, sure, like everyone yeah. looking spoke, for a spoke in the wheel is pressure yeah. on the system, but still. Yeah, it's another spoke in the wheel. But, you know, population is another example, Lori. I mean, warned by uh, the Immigration Department a couple of years ago that these policies were going to put pressure on health care and housing, which is exactly what it's done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there is clearly, clear to me anyway, like a a desire on the part of the government to grow the population. And that's going to be a solution to economic problems, to labor shortage problems. You know, you fill in the blank. But yes, this seems to have been um, now it's, it's colliding in a 
look at all of the policy pressures that are happening because of a lack of planning, because of a lack of foresight around what other things would need to be boosted uh, because of, of a desire to grow the population. Are you expecting big change on the, on the car theft front? Are we going to see something that will, that will show uh, some sort of significant change? I mean, I think there there has to be that there there has to be a response. This is this is theft. This is this is affecting people. This is affecting families immediately. This is this is awful. Like we we have to do something about it. And I think there's going to be a response with respect to like what what are the punishments going to be? What are like what are we going to do to crack down? What are we going to what are the, what is the industry going to do to make it more difficult to steal cars? Like I think mm. that kind of stuff will come up. But I think the parties will differ around something like mandatory minimums for car theft. Like, I think we'll see the policy differences between the parties there. Uh, do you think uh, the industry, the automotive industry, is listening to this? Of course. 100%. Of course they are. Because that ultimately, like, this is, this is their product. This is, they, want, they will want to be able to appeal to people on the basis of, this is a theft-proof car. And there's going to be competition, I would think, between uh, different, you know, auto producers around making sure that if you buy the car, that it's a safe purchase and that you're not going to be finding, you know, walking out of the street and finding that your car is gone. And so, yeah, I mean, this is definitely going to be a response from the industry. Are they concerned that the public may put together, you know, if they steal more cars, they're going to sell more cars. God, but I mean, that can't be a business strategy on, that, on their side. You'd hope I mean, not. No, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that that's would be super short-sighted and, and awful and, and, and contributing to the problem rather than contributing to the solution. And I don't think the, the auto industry wants to be there at all. I think this is an easy fix. If a fob is so easy and a key was so hard, is this not an easy fix? Well, I mean, the, the tech of it could be easy. I'm not really sure about that. It strikes me that tech moves, you know, and, and continues yeah. to develop. If there's a tech solution, there'll be another response to that. I think that there's it's far more complex. There's a there's an international demand. There's a there's a reason why people are selling cars. It's a lucrative thing to do. And so you can fix the tech, but it doesn't necessarily fix the broader issue. Dr. Lori Turnbull with us, professor and chair of public and international affairs, Dalhousie University. Lori, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. All right. The headline says the federal government has announced $99 million in new funding to tackle rent affordability and $5 million in annual spending to help investigate rising grocery prices. Have we not already done this? Uh, to talk more about what this all means moving forward, let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor, Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and here now. Sylvain, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. How about you? So far, so good. Uh, $5 million in spending to investigate rising grocery prices. Have we not done that? <laughs> uh, we haven't empowered non-for-profits to look into this matter. So this is basically about creating a network of knowledge, including six more organizations that uh, do focus on consumer rights. And, and let's face it, consumer rights, uh, groups aren't necessarily resourceful. So this is about research. It's about noting uh, some of the things that may actually be uh, considered as anomalies when it comes to prices. Because right now we don't really we're not we're not all that well tooled in Canada. We have uh, obviously we have the CPI report, and, and frankly, the CPI report uh, by Statistics Canada is 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 quite limited. And um, with uh, through observations and 
and interviews and uh, and witnesses. Uh, I mean, you can basically address the data deficit that we have when it comes to inflation. That was my next point. Uh, more study, more bloating. Is there a solution here? Is this not something someone like yourself hasn't already mentioned? Well, yeah, well, that's, that's our focus. That's our job. We want to uh, understand as well. Uh, we don't have access to firm level data, of course. Yeah. Uh, nobody else, nobody does really. And I don't think the 5 million will actually get to uh, more firm level data. However, however, uh, as I explained uh, on Tuesday when it was announced, uh, I mean, 5 million is not a whole lot, but you can, when you empower small organizations, nimble organizations, um, it can actually uh, give some uh, really interesting information to uh, the minister and to the committee, the Act Committee in Ottawa. What sort of info? What will they find, Sylvain? Well, I think it boils down to uh, their network, the kind of information they, they'll be looking for. So it's all about uh, watching prices, watching formats. Um, the minister seems to be... Uh, obsessed with a couple of uh, concepts like shrinkflation and uh, and skimflation, for example, those are the two things that uh, perhaps people will want want to to surveil a little bit more. Which means that you have to go into stores physically, compare formats, look at the ingredient lists. Now, is this going to actually make a difference? I sincerely doubt that it will, because at the end of the day. Uh, skimflation and shrinkflation do occur uh, because companies want to keep prices as low as possible. And so uh, if you want to eliminate skimflation or shrinkflation, chances are you'll see prices rise. Uh, how are grocers reacting to this news? Honestly, Scott, I actually don't think they care. Yeah. I mean, uh, they... And by the way, I mean, if, if, if someone actually has a lot of information about the market, certainly the grocers. Uh, and Nielsen IQ is the global firm uh, that does have, have access to uh, all of that data. And I suspect that's why the minister was inspired to launch an initiative like this. He knows that Nielsen IQ does have information data that is unaffordable. It's extremely expensive to buy data from Nielsen IQ because they actually have all the data coming from Sobase, from Loblaws, from Metro. It's it's even it's a hundred times more perfect than StatsCan, like at least. And so what? I think that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to give the ministry access to better data. Uh, what will he gain from that data? Insight, intelligence. I think. I mean. I'm a data person, so I certainly appreciate what he's trying to do. And so, and frankly, I've always believed that in Canada, we do a lot of, we make a lot of decisions and a lot of policies are implemented without proper data. Uh, and uh, you see on the internet, on social media, a lot of disinformation. Well, the best weapon you have against misinformation is, is good, solid data. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Ottawa announcing new funding to tackle rising grocery prices. Sylvain, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Frank. A wise man once said, hate has four letters, but so does love. Enemy has sell us... Enemies has seven letters, but so does friends. Lying has five letters, but so does truth. Cry has three letters, but so does joy. Negativity has ten letters, but so does positivity. Sign Frank. Keep right except to pass. 